I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to Florence Sutcliffe Braithwaite, a historian of 20th century Britain at University College London. She has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on the sexologist, poet, novelist, doctor, biologist, gerontologist, anarchist, scientific humanist, public intellectual, pacifist and anti-nuclear activist Alex Comfort. It's a review of Polymath, the life and professions of Dr Alex Comfort, author of The Joy of Sex by Eric Lawson. Hello, Florence, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So as you say in your piece, Alex Comfort was, and is, most famous for writing The Joy of Sex, which he wasn't especially happy about. The press wants to make me Mr. Sex, he complained, since he wrote and thought about so many other things. And as you say in the piece, The Joy of Sex was his, I mean, a sort of staggering number, this, his 31st book, and he was in his early 50s when it was published in 1972. So what were, the, what were the previous 30 books about? And how old or how young was he when, when the first one came out? Um, he had written on a really bewildering variety of topics, although he saw them all as linked. Um, and he, he actually hadn't even gone up to university when his first book came out. He did a sort of, a sort of gap year where he and his father... You wouldn't find probably someone going on their gap year with their dad today. But he went with his father. They kind of booked passage on various ships to sort of travel around on the cheap and pursue his long-standing interest in mollusks and and in kind of um, natural biology generally. And he, he had a kind of travelogue of this journey published while he was still a teenager. So that was actually his first kind of published book. He'd had poems published and pieces published um, in his school magazine before that, so it wasn't even his first kind of publication, but that was his first book. Um, and, and after that, that was his only foray into writing travelogues, I think. But he published poetry, uh, he published novels, he published scientific papers and books um, on mollusks. He, he actually got a PhD uh, from the University of London for a thesis on mollusks. And he also published on the science of ageing and on sort of topics in the kind of field of sociology, ranging quite widely, including on the topic of sex, but um, ranging much more widely than that. Um, and he published on anarchism and pacifism. And it was the sort of anarchism that he saw as connecting basically all of these very varied things that he wrote about over the course of his career. But in his youth as a teenager, he was a evangelical Christian, wasn't he? So that was when he was at school, when he was grew up in Barnet in North London, went to Highgate School, and at that time he was a committed evangelical Christian. Yeah, he came from, on, on both sides, his parents came from nonconformist families, but they were not as committed Christians as he seems to have been as a teenager. Uh, they were sort of a little bit surprised about where this this evangelical fervour had kind of come from, despite the fact that they were both from these kind of long-standing non-conformist families. And they were not the kind of really established upper-middle-class family that you might expect, seeing that he went to Highgate, which is a public school. Um, he went there with a scholarship. They were a very middle-class family, and his mother in particular, and Eric Lawson sort of, writes interestingly about the influence of his mother, who seems to have been a very forceful, very dominant figure. She was very concerned with education, always pushed him a lot, and so was a kind of driving force behind him, having very significant kind of educational achievements from a, a very early age. You know, when he got to Highgate, he was consistently winning all sorts of prizes to the annoyance of some of the other parents. He was um, a contemporary, not an exact contemporary, he was actually a little bit younger 
than Tony Crosland, but still managed to take home some of the prizes that Tony Crosland's mother thought should have gone to him. That she was quite quite annoyed about the young Alex Comfort being so prodigious. Actually, another of his contemporaries was um, my my great uncle, as it happens, who later said of him that he was the most extraordinary and also the most talented person I have ever known. Um, apparently, he used to do chemical analysis of the school meals and publish the unappetizing results on the notice board. But, but, but my great uncle said that he, well, this is his memory of it 60 years later or more than 60 years later, it would have been that. As a boy, Comfort was remarkably charmless, surprising in view of the fact that this was not true of him in adult life, as the testimony of many and photographs show. So how did the change come about, my great uncle Patrick wondered, and when? And do you or does, does Larson have an answer to that question? When did Alex Comfort become charming? I mean, if he did, maybe, maybe charm isn't quite the word. Well, he certainly had a wide circle of friends, um, certainly as an undergraduate, and he seems to have never struggled to make friends and acquaintances and connections. He does seem to have never found it easy to make very close friendships, and he really only had a handful of very close relationships, Eric Larson suggests, over the course of his life. And he, he sort of posits that this might have some connection to this relationship with his mother, which was very formative, very intense, very close, very kind of um, sort of to the exclusion of other people for quite some time. And, of course, he lived the life of the mind to, to quite a large extent. You know, he was he was very happy pursuing all of his his intellectual interests, his projects over this vast array of different topics. So he was also quite self-sufficient. It seems to me that he learned how to create relationships with other people, but he never quite cracked kind of building the really deep, lasting friendships and relationships that perhaps might have sustained him sometimes. Mm. But also presumably people found him quite hard to keep up with. I mean, he had astonishing levels of energy. I mean, in you quote Masters and Johnson, the... um other famous 20th century sexologists saying that finding him exhausting, they couldn't keep up with him. And presumably no one could keep up with him. Yeah, I think there'd be quite a lot of people who would say something similar to what your great uncle said, that he was just an astonishingly brilliant person. Really unusual, really, really surprising. But of course, that did mean that a lot of people found him overwhelming, intimidating, and just tiring to be around. He had so much energy and he was pouring it into so many different things. One of his longest relationships was with his first wife, Ruth Harris, who he met at Cambridge, right? So what was the, what was the circumstances of their meeting? Well, he went up to Cambridge shortly before the outbreak of the Second World War. Um, and during the war, quite a lot of other institutions were sort of evacuated to Cambridge and to other similar places outside of London. So Ruth Harris was evacuated as a, an LSE student to Cambridge, which of course was emptier than usual because a lot of young men of fighting age had gone off to participate in the war in various ways. Now, Alex Comfort himself had not done that because for one thing, he was a medical student and those students were thought by the government to be quite important, so they were kind of kept at their studies for now. And also, as part of his youthful experiments in science, he had blown three fingers off one of his hands. So he was actually disabled and would not have been called up to fight anyway. But also, a third reason that he was still in Cambridge was that he was a conscientious objector. So even if it had not been for those first two factors, he would still have been there anyway. But at any rate, he was in Cambridge, so was Ruth Harris, and she was actually the roommate of another student who will later become very significant to Comfort's story, another woman who was friends with Ruth and also with Alex Comfort for many years, Jane Henderson. So that was how all three of them met and sort of became friends. And was his reasons for being a conscientious objector, was that tied to his religious belief? Was it on religious grounds? Was it a nonconformist Christian pacifism? 
He was at this point still a Christian, so he actually met his first wife through the University Congregational Society. And she, Larson suggests, probably retained some of her religious faith for longer than he did. He sort of lost his faith a few years later when he had actually started his practical medical training. But at this point, he was still religious. And it seems like that played some part in his conviction that one should not participate in war. But he was also kind of thinking and reading more widely. He had been involved in setting up a peace society um, and in activities around the League of Nations Union, even while he was still at Highgate. So he was he was sort of interested in conscientious objection from other angles as well as simply the Christian one. And he was starting to kind of think, and he, he certainly eventually came to the conclusion that being a conscientious objector for him was really not about one's own personal conscience. It wasn't about kind of keeping one's own conscience clean. It had to be about much more than that. It had to be about actively resisting war and kind of banding together with others to resist the pursuit of war by the state. So it kind of had to be a bigger project, really. You couldn't be satisfied with saying, well, I personally would find it morally objectionable for me to kill but I accept that this is what the state is doing and I'm happy for them to conscript others call up others to fight for comfort it had to be a much bigger project than that and so is that his his ideas of anarchism were developing at the same time did that develop simultaneously with his pacifism or did the pacifism lead to the anarchism yeah all his interests at this point in time seem to have been kind of feeding off one another. So his poetry and his pacifism are both kind of leading him to Herbert Reed, who was Britain's most famous, most influential kind of anarchist thinker at this time. And it sort of through Reed and other similar influences, he starts to become more and more convinced that it's anarchism that can sort of provide the intellectual linchpin to hold together his political approach. And so opposing the state and the kind of authoritarian dictates of the state becomes really this sort of central pillar of his politics. And that continued long after the end of the Second World War, didn't it? That he was active in CND and then in the wider anti-nuclear movement. Yeah, his sort of anarchism fed into his belief that one of the most significant sort of forms of political action that you should take was civil disobedience and kind of direct action. And so he was involved not only in CND, but also in a couple of different direct action groups, like the Committee of 100, that were committed to protesting against and opposing nuclear weapons and the whole kind of state apparatus of Cold War defence via direct action. So it was about more than just kind of marching between London and Aldermaston. They actually wanted to go to places where missiles were being kept and undertake direct action to stop the government from doing what it wanted to do. And that he was arrested for some of these activities? Ultimately, he and just over 30 others were summoned to court for planning a big protest and march that was going to take place in, in Trafalgar Square and then around London, sort of around Whitehall and where the Houses of Parliament are. And they were told that they needed to stop these plans, which they refused to do. And so most of them who refused to stop the protest refused to be bound over, i.e. to kind of promise that they wouldn't do anything similar for at least a year. They were sentenced to relatively short um, periods in jail. So he was sentenced to a month in a minimum security, sort of an open prison, and he served about a week of that sentence ultimately. You say in the piece that some of the others were slightly surprised by his apparently un-anarchist behaviour when he was in prison, that he was very good at following orders. And... Well, yeah, this is one of the sort of first moments where his political beliefs started to sort of come into tension with how he was moving through the world. And so I, I have to say I was sort of surprised when I was reading Larson's account because this seems like a moment where he's stood up for what he thinks is right and refused to back down and he's gone to gone to jail. So then it, it was a surprise to me to read that, well, first of all, within a week he had kind of done an about turn and he had decided that he would pay a fine and he would agree to be bound over and he 
would leave prison. Um, but also the accounts of some of the other people who were there with him who sort of said, oh, well, you know, being made to do all these kind of marching drills and stuff. And I was surprised to see Alex, you know, doing the left, right, left, right, click your heels. You know, yes, sir. And Lawson sort of comments that he had been in a lot of institutions. He was obviously, he, he seems to have been quite comfortable in institutions and slotting in, fitting in with the kind of rules and regulations, taking your orders. You know, he was a very innovative thinker, but he was also quite prepared to sort of fit in with institutions like school, like university exams. And so this seems to have been a moment where you kind of saw his thinking actually slightly come up against who he was, the, the kind of way that he wanted to live, because he he ultimately... He didn't want to be in prison. He didn't want his, his family to be affected. He had a son by this time. His son was also at Highgate School now. His son was sort of being teased a little bit about this notoriety that he had gained. And he had this kind of burgeoning career in this new field, gerontology. And this was the sort of thing that, you know, this is quite a sort of conservative, conventional time. This is not a time when your career as a scientist would be that well served by being in the papers for going to jail and all these things really seem to have mattered to him this is a moment where you saw his his political convictions come into conflict with who he was but that conflict continued and we'll talk about this more as it goes along and it wasn't as if he after a week in prison he paid the fine he didn't then abandon his beliefs and he didn't quit cnd or anything though did he i mean so he did no no that that is true far from it he continued to be involved he took a bit of a backseat. He didn't want to be the sort of public face so much of these organisations, but he did continue certainly to be involved in CND and in these other organisations. And he continued to publish a lot, to give talks, to advocate for a rethinking of the doctrine of mutually assured destruction um, and the kind of, as he saw it, the madness of the logic of the Cold War. So he didn't by any means abandon his political beliefs, but there's a kind of chink in the, the armour. There's a bit of a dissonance between sort of who he wanted to be and who he really, what he actually did when the chips were down. And how do his ideas about sex fit into all of this? Because that, there were continuities with his political beliefs, right? That his his beliefs about sexual liberation, if it's not too early to use that phrase, mm. where we are now in the early 60s, was connected to his anarchism. Yeah, and he, he did start thinking about sex really quite early on. Even in the very late 1940s, he was already sort of writing about sex and starting to compile he loved to compile encyclopedias and card indexes and that was the sort of mind he had and he had already started compiling a very extensive card index on the subject of human sexuality and he always saw it as very intrinsically linked to his anarchism so he always saw political liberation and sexual liberation as connected you know he thought it was not a coincidence that oppressive political regimes often or perhaps generally want to clamp down on the fluid expression of human sexuality and want to kind of nail it down into very conventional, traditional lines and to sort of hem it in. He thought that that was because the two were inherently connected. He sort of went back and forth at different points in his life in how precisely he saw that connection. You know, sometimes he sort of wrote that it would have to be a kind of anarchist political liberation that would sort of lead to or underpin a kind of full flourishing of human sexuality. Sometimes he sort of hinted that it could run in the opposite direction and that people who had kind of liberated themselves sexually would be unwilling to be the kind of pawns in the sort of power games of the state. At one point he sort of writes that they would be if you were kind of sexually liberated, you would not be a racist, you wouldn't participate in war, you wouldn't participate in the kind of military-industrial complex, police, all of which seems a little bit far-fetched. Um, and I think Eric Larson suggests that it was when he was kind of tracing the connections in the other direction that he seemed to be on more interesting and more productive ground. But that's the kind of connection that he sees between political and sexual liberation. Those contradictions that you were talking about earlier come into play here as well, don't they? Because in many ways, his own sex life was quite conventional. Yeah. 
certainly in the early years, he it seems that he, he didn't have sex with his wife until after they got married. They got married towards the end of the war. And in fact, even even towards the end of his life, he commented that his own sex life had not been this incredibly libertarian orgy. He certainly had gone on to have much more adventurous sexual experiences than in his early years, but he was you know, far from a debauched libertine at, you know, at any point in his life. That was, that was not his kind of MO. And then at this point in the late 1950s, he began an affair with Jane Henderson, who you mentioned earlier, who was a close friend of both him and Ruth. Yeah, so Jane Henderson w- was friends with them both and you know, had even been on holiday with them and their son. And the affair seems to have begun around 1960. So Jane was sort of very different to Ruth, even though the two of them were friends. Ruth seems to have been quite measured, respectable, quite sort of reserved. And Jane was kind of the opposite. She hadn't married. She was pursuing a career. And she was very, she was much more sensual, more um, kind of physical, less reserved. And so at some point around 1960, it seems she asked Alex Comfort to sort of go out for dinner. She was having some problems. She wanted to, to talk to him. And somehow this affair between them began. Now, after a while, he asked his wife... He felt he had to tell his wife, but he he didn't want to get divorced from his wife at this point. He wanted to remain married and kind of keep the affair going on the side. Now, this definitely seems to have provoked arguments. Um, Alex and Ruth's son, Nick, remembered that neither of his parents were prone to arguing at all. Um, he sort of said, well, my mother was brought up to be extremely polite and considerate of everyone. And my father was also a very polite, considerate, respectful person they had you know never had arguments before but now they started to have rows and scenes as they tried tried to work this out but ultimately ruth did agree to the arrangement that alex comfort was proposing and so they sort of set up this situation where he went home to his wife and to their son on the weekends their son was now a kind of weekly boarder at Highgate and then in the weeks he was with Jane Henderson and she she had a flat in town and they were still living in a suburb outside London so he kind of set up this arrangement which was going to be basically secret including from their son Comfort did sort of tell some people apparently during the 60s because this arrangement went on for a long time for a decade or more he would sometimes take people into his confidence and he would sometimes seem to have a, a sort of pride about this kind of unconventional arrangement during the 60s. But but basically, it was a secret. And that seems to have been partly in his mind because he thought that maintaining a kind of traditional marriage was best for bringing up a family. His son was still at home. And again, partly because it seems likely that a kind of scandal and a divorce might have affected his career negatively. And partly because, it, it, you know, it suited him. He wanted to remain married to his wife. He got something out of that relationship too. And she she ultimately decided that she got enough out of their marriage to remain in, in this rather unsatisfactory situation. Um, he did admit many decades later that it was not a very satisfactory arrangement for any of them. Um, I think his, his words were that both women were in eruption the whole time. So it clearly was not an easy arrangement. And also, I mean, as you, you quote in your piece, um, the way Eric Larson puts it, it was in some way a fairly ordinary affair. I mean, you have a married man, stays with his wife, has a relationship with another woman on the side, his wife knows about it, but it's sort of a secret. I mean, it doesn't... I mean, it sounds sort of fairly prosaic, really. I mean, it's sort of a, a familiar tale of certain kind of man trying to have it both ways. Yeah, I think Lausen puts it really well. Um, he says it wasn't sustained by any ideal of open relationships or open marriage, um, but just by the participants' sort of stoic Englishness and their <laughs> their sort of determination just, OK, we'll just grin and bear it. But yeah, I think he, he was ultimately having it both ways. He was having his cake and eating it. So it wasn't an easy situation to sustain, but he was getting a, a lot out of it. Did he try to intellectualise it as a radical setup? Well, he certainly around this time in one of the many publications that he, he wrote on the topic of 
sexuality, relationships, marriage and, and modern society, he he did write that he thought that moving away from a kind of very strict focus on fidelity could be a very positive thing, but that he thought monogamous marriage was still the best situation in which to raise children. And so he, he wrote that affairs could be, he put it as an adulterous prop to keep the marriage on its feet. Um, and as Larson points out, this was a pretty convenient thing for him to think, given that it was sustaining this this triangle where he got access to both women. And did his relationship with Jane Henderson inform the joy of sex or did his the whole setup, did it inform the joy of sex? I think his relationship with Jane Henderson was really, really formative for the joy of sex because he seems to have really had a kind of sexual awakening with her and because you know the scientist in him was a very, very important part of his character... He immediately started recording his findings in this kind of new world of sexual liberation. Um, So they kept records of the sexual positions and kind of scenarios that they tried out. And they made drawings. All of this material fed very directly into the writing of The Joy of Sex and into, although in a kind of circuitous route, the sort of images that were in the book as well. So, yeah, Jane Henderson was absolutely key to the writing of The Joy of Sex. In fact, when he first kind of was trying to get the book published, he billed himself, again, because he, he didn't want to be associated too directly with what was at the time a you know pretty out there thing to write, a sex guide. Um, so he billed himself as the editor, and he said that the, the book had been compiled by a couple living in the Mediterranean. So acknowledging that it was the experiences of a man and a woman, that had, had fed into the making of the book. But really, it does seem to have been him who was in charge of the text. There is a short section, but it is very short, which is entitled um, For Him By Her. So there is a little bit, which kind of purports to be in the voice of the woman, part of the couple. But but he is basically the author. And slowly over time, as the editions came out, he sort of gradually was just acknowledged to be the author and not the editor of the book. And they know there's very it's quite quite funny about them. They live in the Mediterranean. I mean, it's that like that line of Byron: adultery is far more common where the climate's sultry. The idea they couldn't possibly be English, but in the warm South, all all sorts of other things go on. I mean, it obviously changed things for Alex Comfort. He was moderately famous already, or he had been had a certain kind of fame. But at this point, he became a household name, made him very rich as well, presumably. But was it a revolutionary book? Did it did it change society or? Is it more that it reflected changes in society or are those both two large claims from? No, I think as with most books that sort of get this big, sort of have this much reach, their sort of power comes from the fact that they do both those things. I think he did pick up on some directions in which society was already evolving and he was able to kind of codify that and present it to the public in a kind of fashion that they could easily consume. He helped to sort of make respectable and to crystallise certain things that that I think were already happening and that helps to explain the power of the book and that propelled it to such a large audience and I think did make it very influential. He says that the aims were to make sex both more enjoyable and less guilt-ridden and presumably the, the simple fact of the book's massive success may have contributed a bit towards taking away feelings of guilt and anxiety and shame around sex, that if millions of people were buying the book, that implied they were feeling less less guilty about their sex lives. Yeah, and everything about the book was sort of designed to try and almost make it the kind of book you could have on your coffee table, to make it present sex not as something that you should be ashamed of, but as something that everyone who aspired to kind of good taste should take an interest in, should know something about, should be something of an expert in. That's why it's kind of modelled on the art of cooking. It's sort of saying, you've mastered French cookery, you've you've been to Boots and bought your olive oil so that you can cook Mediterranean food. Now, here's another realm in which you need to make yourself into a bit of a kind of an amateur expert in the bedroom. And some of the success, and also I suppose some of it's, you know, you was a kind of book you could just about leave on the coffee table was the illustrations. There were these 
drawings, which mm. was it the first book of, to have that kind of drawing in it? They're such distinctive images. Yeah. And how much did they contribute to the success of the book? I think they contributed a huge amount. And I think they're still probably the the most famous thing about the book or the thing that will spring to the most people's minds. The sort of this image of this kind of guy in his 40s and a woman who's maybe in her 30s and he's sort of got this long hair and this kind of slightly hippieish beard and she doesn't shave her armpits and they, they just have this kind of slightly countercultural look about them but they're also kind of easing into middle age and they're not young sexy models by any means and that was ultimately really important to the whole kind of aura of the book to making it not sleazy I mean they are literally real people so they look like real people and they were literally a couple and they kind of look like it so the the kind of images you know they might might make some people think cringe but they also have a kind of realism about them and they're not likely to make anyone but the most prurient of people scandalized or disgusted or horrified because they're just they don't have a sleazy aura about them because they are literally images of a real couple (laughs) married couple who are in love who enjoy having sex with one another and who are having a nice time together the man was the artist who drew the pictures is that right they're sort of self-portraits by them yeah Ultimately, um, so it was quite difficult to get the images right. Alex Comfort himself offered some images of of him and Jane, but these were kind of Polaroids they'd taken themselves during their their kind of voyage of discovery, not considered suitable by the book's editor, who just thought these are terrible, funny little pictures. He tried to get source images from lots of other places, tried to collage them, tried to get them from sex shops, tried to get a pair of professional models to pose for a photographer who would then supply the photographs to the two artists who were going to do the paintings and the line drawings. All of these turned up results that were from the horrifying to the kind of sleazy. And it was when one of the artists, Charles Raymond, looked at some of the photographs, he just said, look, I'll do this with my wife. (laughs) Because they're on a deadline. They didn't have a lot of time to get these images done and they needed something to work from. And so kind of using some directions from Comfort at times, it was the artist and his wife who who actually took part in this photo shoot to produce the images. And they both in their recollections later seem to have looked back quite fondly on this and sort of talked about how they did really get into it. And it was a, you know, it was a positive experience for them. They sort of forgot about the photographer. They were, you know, they really were in love and, and having a nice time together. A heartwarming story. And there was a sequel, five years later, More Joy, which included a detailed account of the sandstone community in California. So what was sandstone and what was Alex Comfort's role in it or place in it? Mm. So sandstone was a relatively short-lived. It was only in operation for a few years. And by the time More Joy came out, it had closed down. But it was a kind of intentional community that was founded by John and Barbara Williamson, in California, they bought a big plot of land. They had a big house and some other buildings on the property. And they lived there with a sort of a slightly rotating cast of people, but other couples, 10 or 20. And they would, you could be a member of Sandstone and you could come to its Wednesday and Saturday night parties where everyone there was able to have sex with whoever they wanted. They had a big ballroom and, you know, it was a kind of party atmosphere. Almost everybody who was a member was a member as a couple. And you did have to kind of pay to be a member. This this was kind of how they were trying to finance the whole operation. Now, John did seem to have much grander ultimate plans. He wanted to set up a much bigger project for which Sandstone would only be the sort of pilot. He thought that there was a kind of looming ecological and political catastrophe coming in the 1970s and that... People needed to live in sort of what he conceptualised as more tribal communities, small communities that were sort of self-contained and self-supporting if any of humanity was going to survive this catastrophe. And he thought that freeing up sex would help to establish much better communication than was possible for most people kind of living in mass industrial consumerist society. 
And so Sandstone was a kind of pilot project for kind of creating this this new type of community, which he saw as, you know, the way to survive the looming catastrophe. That part of the whole project doesn't seem to have been incredibly sort of widely understood. I mean, most of the people going to these parties didn't share in that vision of what was going to happen in the 1970s or what people needed to do to survive it. And that doesn't seem to have been Comfort's interest in Sandstone either. He was more interested in what it most obviously was, which was a place that was trying to kind of free up human sexuality and offer people a different way to experience their sexuality. So he was a a big fan. um, And when he was visiting California before he he ultimately moved there later on in the 70s, he, he really enjoyed going to these parties and participating. I mean, it sounds as if the political aim was something that would have struck a chord with him, this idea of a kind of non-state anarchistic freedom through sexual liberation. I mean, it sounds very close to his project. Well, I suppose the interesting thing about his anarchism was that he was never interested to sort of set up or theorise the idea of a kind of anarchist utopia. His anarchism was much more a negative project. It was about critiquing and changing the way that things worked right now. By saying that, I don't mean to say that it was a sort of, um, I don't mean to criticise it as a political project. He acknowledged that it was not about setting out or theorising some new society, but rather about critiquing, deconstructing, giving people a way to resist in the present the sorts of um, oppressions that the state and also capitalism, but the state was the kind of main target of his politics, the kind of oppressions that the state was was sort of setting up in society. So that, that was the kind of focus of his politics. He wasn't, and that's what sets him apart from someone like the Williamsons who were trying to create a wholesale alternative. And then I mean, you mentioned that he moved to California to live. I mean, he got this job at the Centre for the Study of Democratic Institutions, which didn't end well. Maybe it didn't start well. <laughs> I mean, it didn't go very well. Yeah. I mean, as you said, The Joy of Sex sold incredibly well. Actually, interestingly, it came out in the States two years before it came out in Britain and did really well there. Um, and then it did really well in Britain when it came out here too. But it was its publication here was delayed for a couple of years for sort of various reasons, but Seemingly a big part of the reason was that at the point where the book was coming out, he decided that, or perhaps his hand was forced by Jane Henderson sort of demanding of him, he decided that he would seek a divorce from his first wife. And she, it seems, may well have said to him, I really don't want our divorce to be connected with your sex book coming out. You can sort of understand that. You can see why. Um, Perhaps. And so he seems to have insisted that the publication should be delayed in the UK, um, which it was. Um, So it was making him a really big figure in America for a couple of years before it really, really sort of changed his his sort of reputation in the UK. This was obviously something of a different kind of time um, where (laughs) these two worlds could be kept somewhat more separate. But he was kind of attracted to moving to California because experiences like Sandstone had sort of made him think that it it was a place where people were just living differently. It was the kind of centre of the counterculture. It seemed like a kind of exciting, free kind of place. And when this opportunity of moving to the centre kind of came up, he seized on it because it seemed like a great place for a kind of polymathic thinker like himself. But he also does seem to have been very concerned that he needed to hold on to as much of the money that he was making from the joy of sex as possible. You know, he rationalised it. He said to himself, well, I've got an ex-wife now. I've got a new wife. Neither of them were working at this point. His his first wife, Ruth, had taken off a long period of time from work while their son was young. She had subsequently gone back to work, but, you know, she didn't necessarily have a huge pension. So his his kind of argument to himself was, I need to keep hold of all this money that I'm getting because I don't know how long the book is going to continue to sell for. I've got all these responsibilities. 
he seems not to have ever kind of reflected on the fact that this was such a sort of traditional patriarchal thing to have thought. He just just seems to have reached for this as a way of explaining why he needed to. Because presumably he could have, I mean, there's an argument he didn't want to pay taxes because that's a way of resisting the state. He's opposed to the state. He's opposed to, you know, spending on nuclear weapons, you know, like Joan Byers didn't pay her taxes during the Vietnam War. I mean, there are other ways of rationalising it. Yeah, you might have thought, but no, that that never seemed to have cropped up as an argument. He wanted to he wanted to keep hold of his money because he had these women who were dependent on him financially. And so he was very keen to avoid the top UK rate of tax, which at this point was 75% and would actually go up to even higher than that um, in a few years' time. And so he was also attracted to America as a place of low tax. And he was attracted to the centre because they offered to enter into this kind of tax dodge with him, where he claimed that he had written the book whilst he was attached to the centre. Therefore, the royalties from the book should flow to the centre. The centre would then just use those royalties to pay his salary. So it all seemed like it was going to work out perfectly. But in fact, the centre ran into financial problems, sort of started to go back on the deal that they had made with him. He became very angry that the centre was not turning out to be the place that he had thought it was going to be and tried to get back control of his his royalties, which he did. But he also wanted some very significant damages from the centre. He said that they'd kind of lured him to America with false promises and they should pay damages. That did not happen because the judge was very scathing about this kind of tax dodge that they had entered into and just said, well, yeah, you you have can get your royalties back, but I mean, that's it. So the whole thing kind of ended on a very sour note um, and seems to have sort of given him a reputation as a, a troublemaker and seems to have affected his ability to get... You know, he, he wanted to get sort of well-paid, prestigious positions and he found it very difficult to kind of get positions that ticked both of those boxes um, after this whole debacle with, with the centre. And you said that the, the joy of sex can be seen both as the end of an era that began with Murray Stopes's married love and also the beginning of a new era of sexual liberalism, not to be confused with sexual liberation. Could you talk a bit about that, about its position historically? Yeah, I think it is useful to sort of see the joy of sex as in a line of continuity with something like Marie Stopes' Married Love, which came out right at the end of the First World War and was pretty much the first kind of sex manual, very much trying to tell married couples how they could have good sex in order that those marriages would be more stable and would be, you know, the bedrock of a stable society. And Marie Stopes herself was influenced by the fact that her first marriage had been kind of derailed by sexual ignorance. And Comfort's book does sort of lie in a kind of line of tradition with books going back to Married Love. But it is also in very significant ways different from a book like Married Love. Comfort does not assume that the couple to whom he's speaking in the book are going to be married, for one thing. And that, and that is really important. This idea of a kind of regime of sexual liberalism is one that I've taken from the historian Ben Metchen, who has has written about this kind of new regime of it, it involves kind of sexual consumerism seeking self-fulfillment through sex and so that that's where this point about marriage is really important because in a book like the joy of sex the purpose of having good sex is not so that your marriage can be really stable so you can be a really good functioning unit in a stable society and a strong nation which kind of was the point for someone like uh, Marie Stopes. The point for someone like Comfort is that you find self-fulfillment, self-expression, kind of self-determination through exploring your sexuality. And then it's all connected to this kind of sexual consumerism because, you know, you buy the book and you learn from it. So you're, you're a good consumer, you're a self-educator, you're trying to better yourself. And it's all ultimately in pursuit of good sex as a couple, but also it is very focused on the individual and the kind of self-fulfillment that the individual can get out of educating themselves, buying the right things, buying a book, buying sex toys, buying whatever, condoms, and then through educating yourself and buying the right things and exploring, 
you're going to kind of self-actualize. So this is the kind of regime that that comfort is is really right at the start of and is is really helping to kind of spread very widely throughout society. And is the implication that there's something potentially quite coercive about that? I mean, there's, as Slavoj Žižek wrote in the NRB many years ago now, you can, therefore you must, this is the meaning of Viagra. Yeah. I mean, is it that? Yeah, well, it is ultimately quite a heavy burden to bear. And this, that's before we even sort of get into the fact that women seem to bear a heavier burden under this regime and certainly in the joy of sex than men do. It's quite a heavy burden to bear to have to do all of this stuff, to to be told sex is really important. You must do all of these things. You must buy all of these things. You must read these books. You must educate yourself. You must enter into all of this um, communication and play with your partner. You must self-actualize through doing all of this stuff. There's a lot of expectations being placed on people. You know, if we go back to the interwar period, there's a lot of historical research about working class women and their relationship to sexuality that illuminates how important it was to many working class women that they just left that to their husbands. They didn't have to deal with that. So I'm not saying that this was the most wonderful sexual regime ever known to man, but it sort of illuminates that it's not necessarily got to always be the case that people think, well, good sex, a good sex life or a good approach to sexuality has to be knowing, learning, consuming, self-actualizing. And then those feelings of guilt and shame and anxiety that he was trying to get rid of, they can come back the other way, that if people are constantly being told that they're not having good enough sex, then they begin to feel anxious about that. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, um, You say that his two rules to govern sexual behaviour, one, don't risk producing unwanted children, and two, don't exploit other people's feelings, which seem quite simple. Yeah quite good ones yeah I think they do though it isn't entirely clear he lived by the he didn't necessarily live by the second of those himself yes I think that that does seem to have been the case I mean that doesn't make them bad rules and how many people are there who live up to all of the (laughs) the sort of ideals they might profess but he seems to have failed quite substantially on the second at the end of your piece you identify this contradiction you talked about it about it a bit already in Comfort's life and thought or between his life and his thought. But this one sort of seems central to all of them, that his politics centred on individual responsibility to others, but he didn't practice the anarchist ideas he preached. And obviously it's fine not to live up to your own ideals, but in a sense you could say anyone who does live up to their ideals has pretty feeble ideals. But because his ideals were about, you know, this individual behaviour and the way that that will then influence other people and spread through society... That in his case, it it does matter that he didn't because it was about individual behaviour was was at the core of his ideas. I mean, is that how fatal is that contradiction? Yeah, it is a very troubling one. I think when you when you're reading his biography, and and I think Eric Larson has an affection for comfort, but is not sparing with his subject. It is troubling quite how much he failed to live up to these ideals. Um, his relationship with his his second wife, Jane, really seems to have grown quite troubled. There are glimpses of how his enthusiasm for this new world that he was exploring in California, for example, just did not sit well with her. So he's incredibly enthusiastic about sandstone. Uh, but he admitted later that Jane went with him a few times, but she really couldn't take it. She didn't like it. And I mean, it's how easy is it to sort of conjure in your mind the discomfort that might come from being taken to a large sex party by your long-term partner or husband and feeling uncomfortable and hating it. There's a there's a line that Comfort wrote uh, in the follow-up to The Joy of Sex, which is about how important being a secure and communicating couple is. And he sort of writes, well, if you're secure and communicating, there's going to be no jealousy, there's going to be no problems in your relationship. And it's just, it's it's very sad to sort of think about how little that matched up with his relationship with Jane Henderson as it was developing. You know, it seems that she was very depressed in California. Increasingly, her drinking was a problem. They moved back to the UK, ultimately. Um, and this didn't really improve things all that much. 
Larson actually concludes towards the end of the book that although this terminology wouldn't have been around then, in a way, what Comfort was doing with Jane Henderson was acting as an enabler for her drinking because he was not able to really help her in the way that he, it seems he very much did want to, but he retreated into simply supporting her to live this in this quite isolated way, the two of them, with her continuing to drink um, and to rely on antidepressants and other medication. And her unhappiness was so palpable. You know, at one point, she made him break off a relationship with one of the, the very few close friends that he ever had over the course of his life, another woman, because seemingly she was jealous. Um, she sort of torpedoed her relationship with Comfort's son after his son Nick decided to get a divorce while still having young children at home. And it's sort of hard not to speculate that this was bringing up a very difficult part of her own life when she was sort of kept a secret in Comfort's life for over a decade with the rationalisation or justification that he couldn't leave his first wife while his son was still at home. It's hard not to wonder whether she's looking at the next generation doing things differently, saying, well, we're not going to we're not going to live by those rules and just incredibly angry about it, about what she went through, the compromises that she made that Comfort asked her to make. So it's, yeah, it's very sad to to read about the their relationship um, and her her depression and her sadness. <laughs> Bit of a downer, sorry. It's too, too grim and too much of a downer to end on. The, I mean, I had a slightly ungenerous thought about... Um, him well a few underdeveloped thoughts about him as I was reading the piece but one of them that his I mean he was obviously he was interested in geriatrics and in gerontology you know from early in his career but it's hard not to wonder if he became more interested in it as he was growing older himself the extent to which his interests were dictated by his personal circumstances I mean did his interest in gerontology increase as he got older himself um I I sort of think that might be one um uncharitable thought that is <laughs> not not that justified. <laughs> there are many that okay. I have to say are, um, but oh, his in, no his interest in gerontology did come quite early on, and he did pursue it for for many decades. Um, and when he was in California, got involved in in the Grey Panthers, which is obviously kind of a riff on um, <laughs> grey hair, but it's, it's basically fighting for it's fighting for old people's rights. Yeah, old people's rights, basically. Um, old people's rights in medical treatment, but also more generally socially. So I think his interest in gerontology, he he got started when it was not even really much of a field, um, when it was just emerging as an area of study. So he was, a, uh, I think, a real pioneer in that. And he brought his kind of polymathic interests to the topic in a way that was very positive, in that he was able to make connections between the science the medicine and the sort of social side of the treatment of old people and to kind of connect them all and to see how they do all work together and they have to all be tackled simultaneously. Well, you, you quote him as saying to someone that, from past experience, I'm desperately anxious to stay Mr. Aging while the press, following some of my earlier writings, wants to make me Mr. Sex. So maybe we should leave him as, as Mr. Aging. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Florence, very much. Thank you. You can read Florence's piece in the 22nd of February issue of the LRB, along with Marina Warner on Mary Magdalene, Terry Eagleton on Hegel, and Lorraine Daston on Linnaeus. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening. <laughs>